This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Have you heard of a furphy? In Australian slang, it can mean a tall story based on truth, but with some extensions added. Or maybe you know it as the name of an Australian manufacturing company that made movable water tanks. There is a connection between the two. In World War I, soldiers would group around the water tank and swap stories. But there is another side of the Furphy story, which brought Karen Heenan to be published. Welcome, Karen. Hello, Jan. Thanks for having me. Now, Karen, can you explain the connection between the Furphy storytelling and you? Okay, well, the Furphy Award, actually, it's a wonderful award. It was uh, a regional award, so a lot of short story writers may not have heard of it until 2020. So two years ago, the Furphy Award became uh, came national. So I think a lot more short story writers would have heard of it then. And hopefully there's a few people out there who are now hearing about it because it is a wonderful, wonderful award because of the fantastic prizes, $20,000 in all. Now, that's a really large amount for a start. So it's certainly an award worth getting yourself ready for. I became aware of it because a friend of mine was shortlisted in the first time it went national in the 2020 award. And she said, oh, why don't you have a go? So I sent my my story boy off in 2021 and it was shortlisted and not only are the prizes amazing but when you're shortlisted you're published in a very beautiful anthology and that's not something that happens all the time. I quite like the way that the Furphy family their own literature background because it was Joseph Furphy who uh, wrote Such Is Life back in 1903 yes yes and then the, the Furphy family joined with the Lion Brewers who make Furphy beer. And that's how the Furphy Literary Award came around. So, Karen, you mentioned your story called Boy. This boy has some characteristics that the reader may pick up on. What are they? Well, the... The inspiration for the story uh, came about as a result of an actual event. So there was a real-life event where a boy went missing in the Australian bush. He was out straight away from his family. It was very cold. It was either end of autumn, going into winter, very cold. He strayed away from the family and became lost for that afternoon, the night, and some of the next day. Now, I don't know a lot of the details about the, the that particular boy, except that I believe he had autism, but he survived almost because of his autism. I think he just wasn't afraid. <laughs> so in your story, he met Marco. Hey, let's have a little bit of your story from page 49. At first, Marco had thought the boy's silence could have been from shock. Perhaps he'd been running away from something or someone and in the cold and dark had lost all sense of direction. The kid had all his clothes on, so he wasn't hypothermic at least, hadn't started to discard clothes in the belief he was hot. He'd been standing quietly in a dense patch of bush, his red jacket a beacon among the green and grey. His hands were in front of his face, his left hand flicking the fingers of the right, as if he was counting off something in his head. He froze a moment when Marco appeared in front of him, then returned to the finger flicking. 
His lips pursed and a low, soft came from him, like he was sounding out the word ginger and was stuck on the first letter. Marco watched the fingers, something in his head clicking back through the years, a memory or a scene from an old movie, then it spun away again. This memory is most important to the end of the story for what Marco does for the boy. But how does Marco go searching? I love that, that he just went straight up the tree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he is a, a character who's quite used to living out in the bush, and I think that's what struck me when I was writing the story. I thought, well, I'm actually writing about someone who was Uh, accidentally lost the young boy and the person who found him had been deliberately lost he deliberately lost himself locked himself off away from society so then these two people meet he takes the boy back to his hut the boy relaxes a little and even smiles when Marco plays the guitar but this puts Marco in a real problem It was the boy who strayed into his territory, his own small world created out of necessity, really, the urge for simplicity, quietude, night, then day. The boy had brought him something from the other world, reminders of need, of time, anxiety and broken things, broken ways, broken minds, broken hearts, and the feeling of urgency, like trying to empty a river with only a teaspoon, while all around him a storm raged. So... Marco makes a judgment about the boy's parents, which is quite different for his own memories. Yes. That's right. Marco's brother, we find out, was sent away so his mother could be well again. Then Marco hears a helicopter. Well, we're not going to explain right what to the end because this short story has an ending which is hopeful and then possibly horrible. Oh, Karen. (laughs) Now, this remarkable short story didn't win the lucrative prize money. So which one did? Well, the winning story was called Oranges by Thomas Allen. I didn't know of Thomas before, but it, it is a wonderful story. Yeah, and now he's got a lost boy too, but his lost boy is in a whole community of people and it it does make an interesting read. In fact, all the stories are very diverse and they probably reflect the thematic requirement for the story that it is Australian life in all its diversity. So uh, you'll find the, the stories in the anthologies are very diverse, which makes for wonderful reading. Talking about diversity, it's, there's two stories in there about eating meat. One is about a cannibal who's an escaped convict, which is based on truth there. Right, yeah. And the other one, which is really weird, in vitro, is about who can make the best fake meat, whether it's scientists or farmers. That's right. The styles of the stories are so different. There's a lot of teenagers in country towns making good or bad decisions, you know, defying parents about church or discovering sex or, or grieving for dying parents. And then there's other stories about the difficulties of being a parent, yes, especially being a responsible adult. 
it was, a, as you say, a great collection. Karen, last year I read more collections of short stories than I have for a long time. So I assume that authors are choosing to write in this way. Is this a genre that you read as well as write? I do. I've always got a, a novel on the go, possibly some nonfiction and short stories. And if I'm not reading short stories, I intentionally go out looking for them. But you don't have to look too far these days. Um, I'm on Twitter, so I see the, these new collections coming up and, um, you know, mark them. And I do buy a lot through other authors that I know of or hear about. So, yes, I love short story collections and I've read so many. It's hard to choose a favourite, really. <laughs> Just last year, I read two completely different ones. They were a collection of different writers. There was one by Clandestine Press, which collected detective stories that animals solved, and another as different as chalk and cheese because it was called South of the Sun and it was a collection of Australian fairy tales for adults. These are where different authors come in. What about an author that chooses just to write short stories? Do you have a favourite? Yes. One that stays with me is Michelle Wright's Fine. The manuscript was the, it didn't win, but it was shortlisted in the Victorian Premier's Literary Award maybe five years ago, maybe four. I can't really remember. But it was a, a wonderful collection and it's been a very long time since I read it, but some of the images still stay with me. Uh, one that I'm reading at the moment is a very recent one by Fiona Robertson called If You're Happy. So I've only just started that one, but really enjoying that with the quite different settings for the stories and, uh, yes, yeah, some really appealing characters. So I'm enjoying that one. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I really admire authors who can sort of make short stories and because it's so difficult. Every short story has to have a, a really amazing beginning and a defining end. And yeah. I think when you have to write 20 of those to fill a book, <laughs> it gets exactly. very difficult. <laughs> exactly, it is, yes, yeah. And I guess, you know, there's a certain style of writing where people they have an image I know that sometimes that's how I start a story I'll have an image of someone I guess for the story boy I think the image that I had was of the lost child a painting by Australian artist uh, of a child standing in the middle of the Australian bush and lost and looking extremely worried about being lost so that image stuck with me so that propelled me to write that story. So some uh, writers do start from an initial image. It may be a setting. It may, they may have the whole character planned out in their head but not knowing where they're going. But I must say that I, I very seldom know where I'm going with a short story. I usually will start with either a phrase that, or a sentence that really has an impact on me and I have no idea about the characters or a particular scene in a setting that really resonates with something in my past or some feeling that I associate with it, and I have to start writing in order to know where this story will take me. So I'm not, I don't plot stories. I, if I write longer works, I do start plotting when I reach a point where I have to because it depends on uh, many things, you know, where are you going, <clears throat> what, 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 how important is this character or can you drop that character. But with short mm -hmm. stories, it's, it seems a lot easier to just 
you know, right by the seat of your pants, as they say, rather than plotted all out. For me, a lot of other people would perhaps need to have it plotted. Well, I think it's great that the short stories have been valued because the um, Melissa Manning's book, Smokehouse, won the fiction oh, section yes. of Victorian mm-hmm. Premier's Award. Now, she yes. does link her through place, basically. But, That's right, yeah. You know, that was one that I did really like. And I liked the fact that it was linked um, and the writing style was wonderful. So that was one I was going to mention as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, Australia is diverse and 16 writers surprise you when they take you to places you know or think you know in the Furphy Anthology, selected stories from the Furphy Literary Award. Thank you for being one of those authors and bringing that anthology alive. Thank you very much, Karen Heenan. Thank you very much, Jan, for having me. A little more information about the Furphy Literary Award First prize is an eye-watering 15,000 cash and it's free entry. The winner is also offered a residency at La Trobe University and pride of place in the Furphy Anthology 2022, a physical book which is professionally designed, printed and distributed nationally. But writers have only up till April 30 to enter their short story of up to 5,000 words. So get writing and submit your short story to the Furphy Literary Award. I was talking with author Karen Heenan and David's going to be talking with Mandy Beaumont. The relevance of Mandy Beaumont's debut novel, The Furies, was brought into very sharp focus by a farewell speech in Parliament the other day. And this is where I want to begin my interview. So, Mandy, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me, David. Now, Liberal MP Nicole Flint, in her farewell address to Parliament, talked about the repetitive, sickening, sexist and misogynistic abuse and dangerous behaviour that is taking place in Parliament today. Your novel, as a point of contrast, is set in an abattoir where Cynthia has to fend for herself amidst similar sorts of abuse simply to survive. And I was astonished because there seems to be such a close parallel between this abattoir and our own Parliament. Isn't there just? The use of the abattoir in The Furies was very purposeful. I wanted to really ram home the fact that the way that, and it's very visceral, the way that we treat animals in abattoirs, and it's very like, you know, cut here, bruise here, do here, is the way that women are embodied in society and the way that the structures that support, again, and going back to that quote, the repetition, the ongoing building of these structures that hurt and, um, misplaced women continues and it's not just in parliament it's not just an abattoir it's everywhere so um and that's not me playing games it's me saying that's what's happening like it's there but this is what is so shocking because we can dismiss perhaps an abattoir until Mm. we get evidence from what's going on around us and it is so real so real like I'll use fiction to 
the way I write is using fiction to explore ideas that are socially and culturally relevant in the world and of course that's relevant and I'm a woman and I've grown up in and it's a very working class Queensland based book and I've grown up in those spaces and have experienced those things as many of my friends have as people in parliament as Brittany Higgins you know all these people like it's it's actually just about listening to us. The nature of the abuse that you write about is more than just the extreme violence of rape. It's actually more problematic than just the physical violence that we see. So, for example, Cynthia's mother was never treated for her postnatal depression after the birth of Cynthia's sister, Mallory, and she begins to hear voices. The support infrastructure is not there behind it all. Correct. And I would argue that in the book, the support infrastructure is there with the Furies, the women who come and support her in her living. So the idea behind the book is that, yes, there's all these structures in place that aren't supporting women, exactly what you've said. But together, there is there is power in the collective reckoning. There is a power in us coming together to change up systems. Look at unions over the world, collectives. I mean, this is the, how change happens. But there's an element of ambiguity then with the Furies because for Cynthia's mother, these are the voices almost of madness. And that was really intentional as well. So I'm really interested in fiction, in the idea of ambiguity and that the world isn't black or white, it is grey and the ambiguous nature of life is the living of life. I'm doing a PhD in um, existential philosophical fiction at RMIT and the existential ideas around ambiguity and the way that we live and nothing is set in stone is really important for me to explore and I think it makes good fiction it makes fiction where I've said what I've said on the page but like how do you read it you've come to it a different way that another person would come to it because of that ambiguity the role of men here is also addressed you have Cynthia's father who abandons the family But there's almost an element of sympathy here because he simply doesn't know what to do. Yeah, he doesn't get it. And I think that so many men that I speak to or non-females that I speak to just don't get it. And I think that's because they don't understand that misogyny, inequality, all those kind of things are structural. And you can be the good bloke, but at the end of the day, you're within a system that supports your movement and your rising and is the opposite for women. It's just the structures that we are in. We also have Cynthia's first partner, Simon, and Cynthia has almost simply given into a relationship with Simon, living out Simon's dream. And it's so simple and so pathetic that Simon also has a simplistic view of what a relationship is. Yeah, it was really interesting. All the men in the book, are I wanted them to be simplistic. I wanted to sort of turn the tables on characterisation in terms of complex characters. And I wanted the female lead, which is Cynthia, which is the powerful lead, to have complexity and come up against simple or banal things in her life, which we all do. The title of the book then is The Furies. And these were the female deities of vengeance who were of the earth. And this notion becomes manifest in a number of ways in the novel. Firstly, Cynthia speaks of a bruise she has 
And I remember how troubled I was when I realised that it was finally turning the same brown colour as the land, turning the yellow shades of the long dry grass near the front gate. My body, which I thought might belong to faraway galaxies, was in fact just a part of the Earth surrounding us. We're all of the Earth here. You've also got Cynthia as a redhead, but there are other connections as well with this image of the abattoir, the blood of the cattle going into the earth. And it's almost as if the earth is what is taking out its vengeance mm. on the world or the people around us. Yeah, there's a lot of motifs in the book and it's really, there's a lot of complexity. I mean, it's it's a, it's not a, complex read as such like you can read through it pretty quickly but there's a lot of complex ideas and the linking of nature to women was really interesting to me um and the way that women are often seen in history and philosophy and all these places as being outside of humanity the idea that women are seen as you know the mystical or you know like there's a part in the book that talks about all the names of cyclones they're always women do you know what I mean like it's like women are always airbrushed or you know the mother not the name of themselves so the idea that um, women are powerful outside of humanity or in that mystical was really important for me to ram home those ideas in the book and drive the narrative. You've also got Cynthia's sister, Mallory. Uh, Mallory, by the way, has, in fact, passed away, died cruelly. But this comes up in reference to the weather. You've got El Nino and La Nina. And La Mm. Nina actually means little girl. The loss of Mallory is almost like the forecast of a drought to come. Yeah, very purposely so. And the drought place and the dryness of Queensland, I did, I used Queensland as a place because I think it's really important to write place and place that you know, like many phenomenal Australian writers have done so successfully in the past. But I wanted to use the dryness of Queensland, which I grew up in, up against the harsh dryness, up against a fertile spot of land in the Furies that sits behind the abattoir. And I was really interested in the way that dialectic happens and the way that they speak to each other um, and speak about more than just the land. Now, talking about the Furies, we've said they're of the earth, but they are the deities of vengeance. But you don't actually go in for stereotypical vengeance. I was half expecting Cynthia to take one of the boning knives to some of the men... (laughs) in the abattoir, but she doesn't. No. And it's almost as if the earth is taking its vengeance on us. Well, I just, I really wanted to write a book where the ending, again, coming back to ambiguity, where that ending was ambiguous. What she did, you're not too sure, but I think it comes down to you as a reader. How did you come to the text? What do you think happened? What is your kind of feminism? Like, how do you sit within the book? I really wanted to engage with the reader about those talking points, which I think are really important. And I also wanted the book not to be about, I wanted it to be resistance and I wanted it to be a revolt, definitely, and there is revolt in there, but I wanted it to be resistance and also transcending the space that she's in. So they were really important themes for me to explore in there. And that's why it's so like, hang on, I thought she'd do this, but does she? I don't know. So I quite like that you've taken that from that as well. Also, we have some curious little stylistic conventions in your writing you place a full stop 
after the N. When did you come up with this idea? I kind of wasn't to come up with it. It's kind of just how I write. So um, I'm really interested in giving space to the reader or giving a breath or giving you some space to sit back and think on things. And at the start of the book, I've had some feedback where people are like, oh, it's sort of, I've got a bit caught up in it. I got a bit uncomfortable with the way the writing was. But then I got into it and I realised that's how I'm supposed to feel in the book. It's not a comfortable book. It's an uncomfortable book. So um, the idea that I can use staccato or fragments or, you know, full stops in different places really gives a rhythm to the work and a pace to the work um, and allows the reader to think deeply or skip past. But it gives a nice rhythm, which we all have a rhythm in the way that we are, right? And it also accentuates the next idea that comes along. It's almost as if yeah. we've stopped and this is what follows. So it, it was, was really purposeful, yeah, really purposeful. And also, like, it was really important to actually challenge the reader a bit. I mean, I think about books like Clockwork Orange or... But those kind of books that at the start of the year, oh, I can't read this bloody stuff, train spotting. I'm like, oh, I don't understand this. But at, when you get into it a bit, you go, oh, wow, that totally makes sense. It's such a flow. So I think that was a real influence to me as well. The curious thing is that Cynthia, for all the violence that is perpetrated upon her, comes out with, I think, a sense of identity or self-determination about her yeah. role which is fascinating. But if the reader wants to find out more about Cynthia and how she survives the struggle of working in the abattoir, which is a place very much like a lot of institutions around us today, including our own federal parliament. Boo-hoo, boo-hoo, <laughs> shame, shame. I need to read The Furies by Mandy Beaumont. And it is a Hachette publication. So, Mandy, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, David. Great questions. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.